Our message today is amazing grace. Let's take a few moments and describe grace. The hymn that is called Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Let us pray. Father, it is your moment, Lord. It is your day, and this is your people. We will use your book, and I am your servant, and these are your people, nothing but good can happen here in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of John 17, I'm going to read beginning at verse 21. So put your thinking caps on, because I'm going to approach grace in a different way than you probably maybe have even thought about it. Today, John 17:21. The message today is for all Christians. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference what denomination you're in. Jesus is praying for his church. I like what uh, uh, Christina said, the, the freedom that we have. I thank God that I'm in a church that realizes that God has his people in all churches. Uh, Doug Batchelor says this is one of the things that attracted him. He's one of a great evangelist. This is one of the things that attracted him to, to the Seventh-day Adventist Church was a belief that God has his people in, in, in all persuasions. Let us read from John seventeen twenty one that they may be one even as thou art in me and I in thee that they may be also in us that the world may believe that thy didst send me, and the glory which thy has given me I have given unto them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and they in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that thy didst send me, and lovest them even as thou lovest me. Is there one word that keeps popping out in these verses to you? There's one word. That word is one. Twice in verse 21. Twice in verse 22. This is Jesus praying for his church, uh, which is John 17. There is a gap here. I don't know where you notice that or not. That there is something that is missing. It is the chapter, John 17, that is praying for his church. Jesus is praying for his church. He has set up, he set up in chapter 12, the Last Supper. Jesus has washed his feet. Now Jesus, just a few hours from the cross, just a few hours from the cross, and he prays for his church. He prays for his church, the question that pops into my mind when Jesus prays what is his burden what is the burden of Jesus there's nothing here about being a faithful Sabbath keeper there's nothing here about being a faithful tithe payer there's nothing here that you could you should eat so many carrots a day and drink carrot juice there's nothing about the dress that the, the dress code 
I don't say anything here about these things. In other words, Christ prays for the church. He, he has this one thing in mind. His burden is that they would come together, that they would come together. Forget this, forget the Sabbath, forget the tithe, forget the health message, forget all of these things. But when we come together, all of these things will take care of themselves. All of these other things will take care of themselves. I'm disturbed in the, uh, maybe I should say narrow focus. I'm disturbed on the part of Jesus, a, a little nerd focused, I guess. Why is this oneness so important to Jesus? Why is it so important? Well, before we discuss that, let's look at the ambience. Let's look at the, at the contextual circumstances, the situation around this prayer. We'll go to the book of Luke and Luke, the 22nd chapter. All this stuff about oneness. Now he has been with them for three and a half years, teaching and preaching, and they have been attending uh, evening seminars for three and a half years, and he's been trying to get something into them. How to do church, how to do church. And sometimes I wonder about the amazing patience of Jesus. How he's tarries with his church because in all frankness when you study the scripture you will find out that we are all a stiff-necked hard-headed people he's tearing there trying to get some result out 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 of them teaching preaching illustrating and securing them but there is there is basics there is religion 101 and they have not reached that yet. Uh, what's, what's that? Just, just get along with each other. Just get along with each other. We can seem to get by. I'm speaking of Everett. I'm not speaking of this particular church. All churches are like this. I, I have friends. I've visited other churches. I've, I've been members of other churches. And when you get to Luke 22, you see how pathetic that the situation is and in verse 15 he says unto them Christ is so patient he's so loving with his church he said unto them with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer now he's been he's been to the this is down to the last hours this last hours of his life He's down to the last few hours that he'll be spending with them. And at last, Jesus wants some, he wants some peace of mind. But instead, instead of that, look at verse 21 and 22. Look at the contextual evidence. Let's look at the ambience, the prayer of John 17. And look at verse 21. Behold, the hand of the betrayer is with me. Uh, is with me on the table. And so the Son of Man, as was determined, but woe unto the one that through whom he is betrayed. He is there for the last few hours, and his betrayer is with him. His betrayer is with him. And all of them 
with their own agenda, have, have come to the communion service. I know you've read Desire of Ages, the Spirit of Prophecy books. It's one of my favorite. And uh, she makes a statement. She says that of the 12 disciples, the two of them that had the greatest gifts were Peter and Judas. And she says that Judas was the best preacher of all. If you are one of the gifted people in church, you need to walk humbly with God, lest your gifts will get you into trouble. A few years ago, I didn't, it wasn't, wasn't my ideal to publish it, but I happened to be speaking. The conference was there. They liked what I said, and they had, they published it. They asked me could they use it. They published it in one of our magazines. It became one of the featured articles. And the churches began to call me, the, uh, our sister churches began to call me to come speak. And you know, my head started to swell. My wife had passed, passed then, and I married a very humble woman, Bert. Bert was just a, a sweet, humble person, and she really taught me something, that it's only as we become humble in the eyes of God can we truly be used. If when you get to the point where you think that the church can't make it without you, challenge him to show you that he can. So now he's got to the he got to the bread with his with his betrayer. Is that enough? Well, verse twenty-four. It's almost it's sacred, really. Verse twenty-four. There was also strife among them. They had come to the table with the nominating committee asking for positions. In fact, two of them had been so audaciously, insultingly bold that they had sent their mama to the nominating committee and asked, ask our Lord, when you become conference president, would you put one of my sons on one side and the other on the other? In other words, make one vice president with the other and count the money, I guess. But the Bible records that the other disciples were insulted by this salacious attitude. They were turned off by the by this unholy ambition that they and they are sitting at the table. They're sitting at the table. Do you, do you understand now why? Do you understand why that Jesus is praying in John seventeen for oneness? I hope you can understand why. As as we go through this, I think you'll understand more clearly why Jesus is burdened that we would all become one. There's no ability here to start a church, to win a, to win a war. Uh, there's no ability to go into all the world as Jesus has challenged them to do. They lack the basics. I'm going to say it again, just getting along with one another. I wish it ended there, but in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan asketh, to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have been praying for thee. Thank you, Lord, for praying for us. When you have been converted, strengthen thy brethren. He sat in there with his betrayer. He sat in there with a bunch of, of conniving political church leaders. 
He sat in there with one of the church leaders that Jesus sees. He has no guts. He has no, he has no backbone. And when the pressure will come, he will deny him. And then, of course, when you wind this up and go to Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 56, at the time of Christ's arrest, they all forsake him and fled. That's the church. That's the church that Jesus is praying for. Some of us, I don't know, I think we have this understanding that the purpose of the church is a gathering place for the saints. We need to understand that the saints is used very loosely and I think very generously in the Bible. See, God tends to describe the church the way he would like for it to be. The saints... Don't get carried away with the saints. The saints are God's word for people who are messed up and mixed up, but he's got enough sense to bring them to Jesus, and that's when they become saints. So God knows what he's working with. He's, he's, what is, he's working with, with a people that have different varying degrees of salvation. I remember my wife one time, she loved the Lord. Bert loved the Lord. And, and I, she said something to me and I kind of rebuked her because I loved her and I rebuked her and I, I thought in a nice way. But she looked up to me with that smile and she said, honey, you've been in this message twice as long as I have and you expect me to know as much as you do. And I said, ouch, I'm sorry, you are absolutely right. See, we're all at different degrees of salvation. And this is why the church is a hospital. And the only well person in that hospital is Dr. Jesus. And since we are all in the hospital, did you ever hear a heart patient talking about a cancer patient? Did you ever hear a diabetic talking about the brother with with uh, kidney disease. You know why? Because the heart patient is so wrapped up in getting his heart taken care of, he ain't got no time for your cancer. What the church needs, we need to realize that we are at different stages of sickness, and we all need Christ. We all need Christ. The thing that makes our church one is our real realization that we all need to come together and be one with him and with each other. One thing that makes our church one is our corporate understanding. Our corporate understanding that without the grace of him who saved us, none of us have a chance. The thing that makes us one in our church is our understanding that we are all sinners saved by grace. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount which is Christ's announcement uh, of the kingdom of grace. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it has been said that, that I shall love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your neighbor. You know, if you only get along with those that, that you can get along with at church, you haven't passed religion 101 yet. You see, Jesus is, even goes deeper. You see, Jesus says, 
love your enemies, but I say unto you, bless them that curse you. In other words, if a brother shows up as the nominating committee and he says this person shouldn't deserve any office in this church, bless him, bless him. And I, I realize that's not easy to say, hey, man, to... I'm talking about an eternal uh, experience here. I'm talking about something that we must have if we're to be children of God. God wants us to get along with each other. If you can't get along with those, if you can get along only with those that you feel comfortable with, that takes something extra when you get along with something those you cannot get along with. That takes grace. That takes grace. And verse 25, that you may be the children of your father. He's saying, listen to this, friend. It's not me. It's him that's talking. So if you have any problem with this, take it up with him. He said, if you have not moved to this level of grace, you are not children of the father. Think about that. You're not children of the father. They are dis- disciples just like you and I are. You know, this church is very interesting. I remember this one brother, he was 90 years old, but he, physically, he was fantastic. He, he, uh, he didn't have to use a cane. There was no reason for it. I mean, he could get around about as well as you could. That brother would say amen to everything. And the pastor was preaching, amen, amen. A lot of times when he shouldn't say amen. <laughs> I remember one time was holding evangelistic meetings. And he was, uh, uh, we always lead out and a few songs and he was totally out of tune. I mean, he could, he could sing and he was loud. And I remember that the deacon, the elder come up after the, after the singing and he said, someone's out of tune here. And brother Darty, he said, amen, amen. He thought everybody else was out of tune. He thought that he was the only one. But saying amen is not going to get you into hell, not going to get you into glory. And I believe he actually thought that was. What's going to get you into glory is transformation of character. It's transformation through Christ that will allow you to put into practice on an everyday basis the principle of God's law and his grace putting them into practice in the concept of people. Matthew 7, 1. He said, judge not that you be not judged. See, the most dangerous thing I believe in the church is sinners, not in the way that you're thinking about them, but because you're tempted to forget about your own faults and focus on their faults and think you are better than they are. And you will sometimes say it. I've heard people say, Honey, you know, I know I'm not perfect now. I'm not perfect. And as, you know, as, as, as if their spouse thought they were. And, uh, but I would never under any circumstances dress like they do in church. And when they make that statement, they think it's a, some kind of a holy statement. They feel like the, the wings are going to start growing on their back. 
But the fact is that the nature of the church is to make us all humble. All humble before God, recognizing and understanding that but for the grace of God go I. There's people that come to our church and they are there to help us to understand. Uh, there's people coming to church to help us to keep our mouth shut. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, you can communicate with anyone. And I discuss, I want, I want to go into detail about this friend of mine that calls me. It's been about 30, pretty close to 40 years ago, and he still calls me once or twice every, uh, every month. Uh, and when people come in, maybe sometimes that you're tempted to say something. Uh, God says, remember, you are not perfect. You are not perfect. If a person comes to church with smoke and alcohol on their breath, God says that something there for you maybe to help you to keep your mouth shut. The person that has not been in the church maybe for 15 years, and they finally show up, don't go up to them and make some snide remark like, Oh, we've been praying for you. We've been praying for you. Has it been? It's none of your business how it's been. The only concern that you and I have that these people, so wrapped up in their sins, have come to church and sat down in the pew with hypocrites like you and I. <laughs> you know, I wondered if I could say that. This is what the Lord gave me when he gave me this message. And I said, Lord, should I say that? And the next day when I was thinking about this, the Lord said, turn on the television. I turned it on. Doug Batchelor was speaking, and he had made two verses. He said, sometimes in our life we're all hypocrites. I said, thank you, Lord, for that affirmation. <laughs> so we're back to, we are back to the basics. What am I saying today is that the issue of oneness is the greatest proof of grace in church. The greatest proof of grace in church is gracious people, is gracious people. The greatest evidence that you are growing in grace is that you have become gracious and you have to every broken person that you meet, may they be church members or not. Grace is not some theological term that we know that we when, when we get behind all of that all that scholarly stuff that what grace is looking for is some people that love God so much and appreciate what he's done in their life they're gracious enough just to praise him and do the same for others for the rest of their life I'm going to close this message with a testimony it's been quite a few years ago. I was first elder in the Cincinnati First Church. The pastor called me and he said, Glenn, would you take my place at the, at, as the pastor at the communion table today? He said, he was a very humble man. He said, I want to. I'd like to serve with the deacons. He said, sir, study the last week of our Lord's life to prepare your heart for this service. I did, and I thought my heart was prepared. But the Lord knew something different. 
We had a social worker that had brought an old seedy-looking alcoholic from a halfway house. It was very obvious what he was, but he sat on the front pew. And my and see, I had had a problem with alcohol when Jesus gave me the transformation. He took away the alcohol, the tobacco. He took away everything, and I don't think I've I can't stay away from him ever since I've been in the church. If, I don't think I miss a church, Daddy, unless I was sick or something, some emergency. But anyway, my wife looked up to him and she said, why don't you take him down? And I went up and I took him down and I washed his feet. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, unless you can put your arms around an alcoholic, a prostitute, a homosexual, Whatever that person may be, unless you can put your arms around him and say, I love you, you're not worthy to stand behind that table and represent me today. I've, I remembered that. I've, I've never forgot it. And it left an impression on me. Unless I can love Jesus and love each and every one, regardless of what that person may be that walks in this church, I can see him and know that he, God created him. God loves him. Unless I can do that, I'm not worthy to stand up here and teach you or preach to you or whatever. That's the kind of relationship that God wants to give each one of us. There was a time that I used to make appeals for the folks to come forward, like to be prayed for. But I think maybe the last one that I made, I remember there's two people that were helping each other. And that was my wife and sister Lena. They both had Alzheimer's. And they were, they wanted to be a part of the family of God. They want to be a part of that prayer as they come up. I waited. We had to wait a while before they could reach the altar. I don't do that anymore. And there's a reason for that. I think that you don't have to come to the altar. Now, there's not anything wrong with that. God, if we can do that. But I believe that God knows each one of us so well, so personally. He knows our heart. And if you would like to be included in this prayer, and this, as I give the benediction, just lift your hand up. This is for the oneness of with God and our fellow men. Just lift your hand at this time and let us pray. Father, that amazing grace. It's been so real this morning, Father, in this message that you've given me. It's not my message, it's yours. Father, I just pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we truly might become one in Christ. And when I'm truly convinced when that horizontal dimension is met, the vertical dimension will be right. Father, the amazing grace of God is able to accomplish that in all of our hearts if we will just say, come, Lord Jesus. I give my life to you. I'm asking for the, for the mind of Jesus. Father, we accept that today. And thank you for what you're going to do and have done in our midst. In Jesus' precious name, amen.